This episode discusses suicide and suicidal ideation. Some people may find this distressing. If you or someone you know is struggling, please talk to a friend, a family member or somebody you trust. Ask your GP for help or free phone Samaritans on 116123. Free phone from any phone in Ireland. You're never alone. Support is available 24-7, 365 days a year. Don't suffer in silence. Help is on hand. Days do get better. Episode 126 of the Talking Bollocks podcast brought to you by Go Loud. It's me, COB. It's me, Tardy Flower. And today we're joined by Jerry Hussey. Jerry, you wait for a little nod there. I thought you would have been ready for it. <laughs> How's things, Jerry? How are I'm you? Great. I'm nervous sitting here now. Two sharpshooters are looking at me, but uh, <laughs> I'm good. I'm feeling good, yeah. You couldn't be nervous in front of two people considering what you do in front of hundreds of people. Ah, well, this guy knows how bad of a boxer I was. So <laughs> pull that out. <laughs> Before we came in, we were chatting outside and it yeah. turns out that Terence and Jerry actually knew each other from a previous life. Yeah, literally. So, Jerry remembers me from Saviour's Boxing Club going in. Well, I'm sure it's hard to forget me, little red... I grow fella going him lord and shouting all over the gap. But that's mental, isn't it, Jerry? Like, yeah, yeah. It's literally like a full circle moment. Because yeah. yesterday, obviously, I was down at your... What would you call that? Seminar? seminar? Yeah, we call them Soul Sundays. They're a one-day seminar. Yeah, a one-day seminar. And that, oh my God, I can't even explain what happened in that. I was, trying, I was ringing you this morning and I was like, there's no even point in me trying to explain it to Calvin because I'll do him no justice. So I'd be like, he said this, this and this and then I'll butcher it. So I said, I'm not even <laughs> going to get into it with you. Mm-hmm. But it was it was one of the most powerful things I've ever experienced, Sherry. Honestly, like me and three other people went down to it and everyone, not every one of us, everyone in the room was in floods of tears. <laughs> and at first, you were doing a meditation thing, Jerry. I don't want to get into too much, obviously, but you were doing a meditation thing that went on for a while and... There was a moment, you know, where you, you were talking and you, and you mentioned something about your inner child and your eight-year-old self and stuff. Mm-hmm. And all you could hear was sniffles all over the room and I was saying, what's going on here? <laughs> and I had a lump in the throat and I'm trying to hold it back because there's gangs of people there. You know? <laughs> I just didn't want to be seen like that, you know what I mean? But I looked left and right and everyone's here and I just burst out. I was in floods of tears. The energy in the room, oh, it, was, it was genuinely one of the best days of my life. I think I needed that. And I don't even know why, but for some reason I felt like I was in there for a reason. Like it was everything that I needed to hear in that moment. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I can't even imagine what the buzz was like for you to see everybody at the end. All of us are up dancing and screaming. You have us bleeding, shadow boxing and <laughs> everything else in between. But it was, I want to thank you for that, Jerry, because I needed that. It was unbelievable. So wow. thank you. And what was the experience like for you though? I love this work. I love it from the moment I started discovering it myself. And people sometimes see me as Jerry, you know, the guy that does the meditation. He's so confident. He's so calm. But that's one side of me. And when I do the work, I I, I get to a place of calm, confidence and calm. But like growing up, you know, people might know or not know. For me, I got interested in this work because I was crippled with anxiety. Um I had massive panic attacks. My first suicide attempt was when I was 11. My second was when I was 14. And at 14 years old, I was getting kicked out of school. I was failing my exams. I was racked in anxiety. I thought I was dying every second day. I got to a point where I just felt that something's wrong with me. I'm broken. I can't be fixed. I've gone from doctor to doctor to doctor. They did blood tests. Everyone says I'm healthy. And then eventually after my mum and dad brought me to every doctor going and 
my dad was a farmer growing up. We had very little money. And we'd eight kids, so my dad worked at every job going just to put food on the table. And then they had to spend over £200. It still sticks in my head, £200 to see this paediatrician, this expert. And he did a few quick tests on me. And I'll never forget actually sitting in his office having a panic attack while it's happening. And I noticed two things. One was he was talking to my mother about me. He never spoke to me. He never engaged me. And the second thing I noticed was he was almost telling my mother what it was before we even got into it. And at the end of the day, after we did a load of tests, including a brain scan, he said to my mother, good news, perfectly healthy young man. And my mother was so terrified that I'd take my own life. My mother was like, please do another test. Please do something else. There's, he's not healthy. I see him. I see him at his worst. He, he's struggling. And um, she said, there has to be something else. And he said, there's no more tests. And she said, like, well, what do you think it is? And there's moments in your life, there's a lovely expression that says, you never know how strong you are until strong is your only option. And he said to my mother, if you want my honest opinion, he's making this up so he doesn't have to go to school. And he kind of barked at my mother. And my mother put doctors on a pedestal. And she was kind of almost bound in front of him. And he just barked at her. And something inside me said, firstly, how dare you speak to my mother like that? And secondly, you've no idea how bad I feel. And if you did, there's no way you'd say that. And something made me realize that that medical world at that time were missing something. They didn't understand something. And to say to a 14-year-old kid that was you know, terrified that he was useless, that he was, everything was a struggle, thinking of ending his own life, that he was making it up so he didn't have to go to school. And that's without even consciously knowing it. That is the moment in my life I knew I would dedicate the rest of my life to trying to find out this because somebody has to say it. Somebody has to find something. Somebody has to find a way through this. And if I can find a way through it for myself, maybe I can bring that to other people. So when I'm in a room like that, it is me trying to show people the work that I've done, the challenges I've overcome. I understand what rock bottom feels like. I understand the times in life where you think there is no way out. You have nothing to live for. And I also know there's an incredible spirit in the human being. And if you can just see a glimmer of light for a second, if you can just find a new way, then bit by bit by bit, every life can be repaired. Every spirit can be re reawakened. Every mind can be fixed. Every body can be rebalanced. And when you start to do it from an integrated point of view, where you balance the mind, the body, the nervous system, suddenly you realize I have far more power in me than I think. And that's what I love doing, just trying to connect people to the power the power they have inside, the power of their mind, the power of their spirit, people who think they couldn't sing, just start singing and dancing. And we're not comparing each other anymore. We're not saying, I can't do that. We're just letting ourselves live. And I just love it because I love the work and I know the power of the stuff we do. Yeah, like I said, I can't express it enough. It was one of them mornings and days that you just had to be there. Like I was saying as well beforehand, I have ADHD, so when I read The Yoke, it was like 9 a.m. till 2 p.m. I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to concentrate or, or focus for that long. Or, and it was like from the second I started, I didn't want to be anywhere else. I just wanted to, I would have stayed there till 9 o'clock that night. I would have just to listen and experience what I experienced yesterday. And I think if anybody ever gets the chance to do it, they really, really should because it was so powerful. As you said, I can't express it enough. But, uh, Charlie, take us back to the start. I know you've touched on a little bit there, but... 
Where are you from and what was life like growing up by yourself? Yeah, I'm from uh, the west of Ireland, a lovely place called Glenamady. And growing up, I had loving parents. I had uh, great brothers and sisters. There was eight of us in the family, mum and dad. We lived on a farm, so I milked cows every day. So I lived in a really beautiful environment where I had loving parents. So from an outside point of view, I had this perfect life. Nothing to be afraid of. Everything was calm. And on the inside, I was terrified every given moment. I went to the local VEC school. It wasn't very academic. Nobody pushed us hard. We played football when we wanted to. So I loved it. And I was blessed to meet some teachers that probably knew that I had capability, but there was something not quite right about me. And they weren't pushing me into school. They weren't pushing me to be academic. They were allowing me to play football. They were... And what I would say is the school I went to, the vocational school in Glenamady, the teachers were the most amazing human beings. They knew at times when to push and not to push. And I think for me, they realised that there was something I had, there was a talent that I had, but they knew I was struggling. And I think had I gone to any other school, I could have gone under. So I was blessed that I fell into a school where the teachers were deeply human and cared about us. I was blessed with incredible parents. I grew up milking cows and going to the bog and doing things that you guys might know, but <laughs> as, a, as an out-and-out culture. And, uh, and then eventually I came to Dublin um, in 1997. I go to college, joined St. Serious Boxing Club and just began to expose myself to psychology, to neuroscience, nutrition, the mind-body connection, got a master's. And every day since, I'm continuing to learn and develop. So, you know, me as a person, I'm changing every single day. And sometimes I look back and say, God, was that really me? Yeah. Um, so it's like I've had 10 lives in one. Why do you think that as a child, as you, you mentioned, you, you had a social attempt when you were 11. Why do you think it was that, that you were like that? I think it's a number of things. I think, firstly, it's when we understand the central nervous system, a lot of anxiety is an overwhelmed central nervous system. So your nervous system is in two parts. One is a sympathetic and one is a parasympathetic. When we get a shock or a fright or when we need a burst of adrenaline, we, we activate the sympathetic nervous system. So our heart rate goes up, our brain starts producing chemicals like adrenaline and cortisol. And for that time, we have bursts of energy and bursts. The problem with that is, we can only be in that short term. On the other side is what's called the parasympathetic nervous system. And when we're in the parasympathetic nervous system, our body rebalances, our cells rebuild, our immune system upgrades itself, we can detoxify the body. So you want to think of it like push recovery, push recovery. Mm. So anybody that's into sport knows you, you push hard on the gym, then you recover. And that's the way the body's meant to function. But we're only meant to push being that sympathetic nervous system for a short period of our life. So people who suffer from anxiety, people like the emotion is one thing, but the feeling, you can feel it in your heart, you can feel your, your palm sweating, you can feel it in your stomach. So that is a physical symptom, which means anxiety is in the body. And what people should know is that 80% of emotions are actually in the body. So your body switched on to high alert and you're chemically charged with a cortisol and adrenaline. That can be caused by food. It can be caused by lots of different things. But really what it's caused by is trauma. And when people think of trauma, they always think of a car crash, my mm -hmm. house burned down. They're the big traumas. But you can also have a trauma that is a million little things. Not feeling good enough. Being laughed at as a child. Not feeling loved by your dad. Just feeling that I'm not enough. And that's actually the biggest trauma. I say that the biggest trauma a human being can experience is the feeling of not being enough and not being lovable. And I think I grew up with two amazing brothers, but I compared myself to them. And they were gifted at the things my dad was gifted at. So they had a great relationship with my dad. I didn't. I had a terrible relationship with my dad because I was into stuff he didn't know. 
And I grew up with this voice in my head saying, I've no value. I'm not loved. I'm not lovable. And it's amazing when you tell those stories, your thoughts, and we know from your science, your thoughts switch on your nervous system. So the more I was telling myself, something bad's going to happen to me. If I come up against a challenge, I'm not going to be able for it. I'm too weak for this world. I was now telling myself terrifying stories and that was switching on my nervous system. So for me, people talk about chemical imbalance and anxiety and there's very little scientific facts behind chemical imbalance. The vast majority of anxiety comes down to trauma that's not unresolved or it comes down to an overwhelmed central nervous system. And sometimes it's not trauma. It could be that people are overworked. You know, people who are maybe busy lives or working hard, they're trying to raise kids, they're on the phone. And what happens is eventually your nervous system just gets so tired that it goes into a state of shock and it can't come out of that. And that's how I've unfolded it, by working on my nervous system, by learning how to breathe differently, learning to meditate, getting to ice water and ice baths and ice tanks. And I remember we had an ice shower in St. Saviour's. And all of these things have been deprogramming my physical nervous system, but also then trauma and therapy. I went into therapy and just said the things out loud that I thought I could never say, the stuff that I was bottling up. Because when I was growing up, people said, you know, bottle up, toughen up. Mm. And doctors and teachers to me just kind of just toughen up a bit, just toughen up, man up. Like big boys don't cry. But I've learned that big boys do cry. And in fact, incredible boys cry. And tough men cry because emotions have to be released. And we all get scared. We all feel fear. And if we suppress or deny those emotions, they get trapped in the nervous system and the body goes into overload. Mm. I think it's a real progressive thing, even though it's always been around for like all of human history. But it's a real 24th century way of thinking of how the mind and the body actually do connect. And if you are feeling down and depressed and overwhelmed emotionally and mentally, it can have a knock-on effect and you'll always hear people saying I'm feeling very run down and then they get sick and they break out in like cold sores and stuff yeah. like that. Like cold sores are directly correlated with stress and stuff. Of course. So like that's a sign right there that if you're not right mentally, your body will react to that. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people really realise that and what you were talking about like taking a suicide attempt. I was thinking about this today. I listened to a TED talk from maternity to the morgue and I was thinking to myself, isn't it mad when people feel overwhelmed and depressed that they it's like just, your body steers itself towards suicide. Like, let's just end all of this. And you're like, but there's so many simpler solutions and steps we can take to prevent this and get out of this. And I think with the likes of yourself, Jerry, and it is becoming a lot more widespread and well-known and there's a lot of research and data out there to support it, that you can fix yourself with just little traits and little behaviour fixes and day-to-day routines mm-hmm. that will make your life so much better in the long run. Mm-hmm. You know, like... If you were telling someone you're going to have to run a marathon, you're not expecting them to do it tomorrow. You train and you build up. And that's the same thing with lifestyle changes. You know what I mean? Drink less alcohol, go to bed earlier, concentrate more on this, do less of that, and increment that into your day-to-day life. And before you know you see the results. It may not be in the first day, it may not be in the first month, but it will eventually get better. Yeah, that's exactly it. And you know, people often say to me when I tell the work I do every day, God, it's not easy. The easy life is eat crap. Stay in a job you don't like, stay in a relationship that doesn't serve you anymore, beat yourself up, give out about yourself and think about all the things you can. That's the easy part. The hard part is standing up to yourself, standing up to your inner critic. The hard part is getting out of bed in the morning, getting into an ice bath, getting out for a run. That's the hard part. But then that gives you the freedom. So for me, after 
I do the work. It's just like I'm a different person. It's like I'm energized. You said you felt you're on drugs yesterday. Yeah. I feel most days I'm supercharged, I'm energized, I'm fearless, I'm confident because of the work. So for me, it's not easy. And I hate this idea of 21 days to change your life. No mm. one's going to change your life in 21 days. I didn't do it. No one becomes successful overnight. No. When you dig in behind, it's the work. So what I would say to people, it is not easy. It is not quick fix, but I promise you it is worth it. And what I would say to anybody, you know, start small. So there was often days where I had to do something just to get me through the next hour. I couldn't think any longer than that. And you're just hanging on for that second. But if you can inspire, if you can either activate your mind or your nervous system through any type of activity, it just gives you that sense. You know, and even when it comes to breathing, most of us are breathing in a threat state. Your lungs are four to five litres, and we should be breathing four to six breaths per minute. But most adults are breathing 20 breaths or 25 breaths a minute, far too fast and far too shallow. And when we breathe fast and shallow, it activates the sympathetic nervous system. It actually switches on stress. So when you watch all great athletes, a great golfer or a tennis player, before they take a big shot or, or a penalty taker, they'll stop and take a deep breath. Now, why are they doing that? Because it's balancing the nervous system and it's opening a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. And when you open the prefrontal cortex, now you have better awareness, you can think with better perspective, and you shrink the amygdala, which is the limbic part of the brain. The limbic brain is the stress center. So when you're high alert and you're really running on high emotion, it's the amygdala that's taking over. You have to find a way of shrinking that and opening the prefrontal cortex. So when you begin to understand the mechanics of the brain and the science of the brain and the nervous system, and it's not that complicated, it's actually pretty simple stuff, you begin to realize now that no matter what emotion you're experiencing right now, with a little bit of work, and that could be 15 or 20 minutes, you can actually change the emotion. The moment you change the emotion, you change the way the brain is thinking. And like 20 years ago, and I was telling people that your thoughts change your biology and body, people thought I was nuts. And I used to say, well, think about when you get embarrassed. So when you get embarrassed, you have a thought. The thought leads to an emotion, and then your cheeks go red. Well, that's a physical change in the body. Or when you cry, you have a thought that leads to physical tears. So there's no doubt that every single emotion creates a physical change in the body. And how many people are holding on to anger, sadness, guilt, shame, and there is no way scientifically we can deny anymore that undigested and repressed emotions change the biology and chemistry of your body. There's no other way of, of dealing with it. So it's a cycle. The more we work with the body is the more we rebalance the emotion. The more we work on the mind and meditation is the more we give license to the body to heal itself and to become freer and healthier. Yeah, the hardware looked after the software, software looks after the hardware. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah, so we actually spoke about manifesting before on this, yeah? Mm. And we were both, what I remember what I was talking about was, I think like the actual like reading of manifestation is, you have a thought, it goes up to the universe, the universe breaks up the molecules, gives a back chat, and you're like, right, if yeah. that's the case, we'd all just sit in the room all day saying, I want to be a millionaire, I want to be a millionaire, yeah, I want to yeah, be yeah. a millionaire, and then we're just going to be a millionaire, you know what I mean? Yeah. What do you think is actual manifestation? I think two things, and I like to think along the scientific route. So one, if you want to win the lotto, keep meditating, keep believing, but go and buy a bloody ticket. Yeah. <laughs> it really helps you buy a ticket. Yeah. So you have to do the work. Yeah. So yeah. I've often wanted to buy a house, but I had to go and do the work to buy the house. I had to go to the bank, I had to apply for a mortgage. So I'm always putting things into the universe. I'm always visualizing and meditating, on it. but then I have to do the work. So the work is the process. What I believe is there's a part of the brain called reticular activating system. When we spoke about this yesterday. 
So if you go to, we're all fairly familiar with social media now or Google. So if you type in, you know, every day you're looking at your search engine, you're typing in a topic. So if you want to buy a red car, you type in red cars. Suddenly all the ads on all your feeds start to come about those things. So the way the algorithms and social media work is the more you express an interest in something, they come into your feed and everything that you're not expressing an interest in gets wiped out. Now, what people should know is in their brain, we have the exact same system. It's called the reticular activating system. So the more you think about something, the more the conscious mind sees more of that in the world. The more you don't think about something, you don't see it. You become consciously blind to it. So the first thing is it is scientifically proven through the chemistry of the brain, the science of the brain, that the things you think about are the things you begin to see more of. Then secondly... It is about a belief. So if I said to you guys, lads, if you run from here to Atlon, I'll give you a million euro. You're going to think, hey, does he have a million euro? Look at his shoes. I don't think he has a million. <laughs> I don't think he has a million euro. B, would he really give it to me? Not really. And you're going to have no interest in going to Atlon. But if I put the million euro in front of you and put it into your bank account, yeah. so it's there. And now the only way you have to go, now you're going to do it. So the more I meditate on something is the more I don't see the obstacles anymore. I see it happening and I begin to experience, I begin to feel how I feel when, so I begin to feel as if it's already happened. So I get excited about it, I get, I feel gratitude about it, I feel passion about it. So then when an obstacle comes, I'm like, no, I'm so, I'm so ready for this. I'm so excited. You're not going to stop me. So when I visualize stuff, I create this emotional connection to it as if it's already happened. And then I realized that a lot of people, a lot of things might get in my way, but because I'm so emotionally connected to it, I'm not going to let them stop me. And then the last thing I would say about manifestation is there's three steps to what I believe manifestation is. And one is the outcome. So you've got to visualize what you want. You've got to send it into the universe exactly what you want. If you're mumbling and you want a bed, it might send you a loaf of bread. So you have to be very clear about what type of house do you want? Where do you want it to be? What do you want to book? What type of book do you want to, what would it look like? So for me, you have to be very clear. You have to write it, create a vision board, and that becomes your focus. If another opportunity comes up that's not connected to that picture, you say no to it. And anything that takes you even one inch closer to that picture, you say yes to it. So you have your very clear outcome and nothing's going to distract you from that. Then you have, what's the process? So if I want to get fitter, what three things can I do to get fitter? If I want to lose weight, what three things can I do? If I want to get richer, what three things can I do? So you have the outcome and now you have the process. The moment you begin to think about the process, you forget about the outcome because it's already happened. You just believe it's already happened and you focus on the process. And then the last part, which is probably the most important, is when you think of everything you've ever wanted, so you have an award-winning podcast, you're gone global, you're flying around your private jets, what type of person would have that? So now you begin to think of what type of person would have all the things that I want? They'd be confident, they'd be calm, they'd be very focused, they'd be giving their energy to the right things, and they'd be surrounded by incredible people. Now become that person. So what I say is the right person with the right process never has to worry about the outcome. Becoming the right person, calm, focused, saying yes to the right stuff, able to say no to anything that distracts you, surrounding yourself with the right people, coming from a place of love and kindness and gratitude. You set yourself up with this frequency, this energy that says to the universe, I am ready to receive this gift. I am ready to handle it. I'm living as if it's already happened. And the most amazing thing is the more you send that energy, that frequency into the universe, the universe begins to give you what you've already wanted. And 
that's the multiple steps to me. So manifestation isn't as simple as just thinking about it and it happens. Mm. You got to do the work. You got to have the outcome very clear. You got to have the process right every single day working on that process. But you also have to be the right person. So like before you become Olympic champion, you have to think, act and live as if you're Olympic champion already. Katie Taylor didn't become world champion and then think about becoming a world champion. She probably thought years before she was world champion and that allowed her to become that person. So you have to create the mindset and you have to live from that place of energy and frequency as if it's already happened. And when your frequency matches the frequency of the thing you want, it's like a magnet. It comes to you. You don't chase it anymore. It comes to you. See, that makes perfect sense. We had this conversation on the podcast and it was around lockdown time and the secret was a big thing at that stage and everybody was on the bandwagon of it and it was, we've read the secret. I know what I want. I know what I'm going to get. And... Doing nothing about it. So there's no work for it. <laughs> I still don't think they've done anything about it, to be honest yeah. with you, them people. So, like, it wasn't a place of, like, us being condescending mm. or anything. It was like, yeah, you've read the book yeah. and you probably think you know what you want. Now act on that. I know. I'll just read the book, like, you know what I mean? Um, you speak about meditation. How long do you meditate for every day? Uh, I wouldn't meditate. I meditate in different ways. So sometimes I meditate by lying on the floor and it could be 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Sometimes I meditate by going on a punch bag and that might sound funny. So a lot of people are familiar with a kind of static meditation where you lie down and zone out. But meditation, the real powerful forms of meditation are actually dynamic or movement meditation. So you can meditate as you box. So I might go on a bag, get to a nice rhythm and then I just disappear. It's like my body is boxing, but I'm not worried about the time. I'm not counting punches. I'm just, or sometimes I, I, I go for a run and I, I just disappear while I'm running. My body runs. So I would meditate every day, but I would meditate in different ways. Sometimes it's 45 minutes, but I, I run my own business. I have two young kids in the house and uh, sometimes I meditate for 15 minutes. But 15 minutes is 1% of your day. It's 1% of your time. And if you don't give yourself 1% of your time, then what are you doing? So I would always make sure that I do something to energize my body to balance my nervous system and to open my mind every day. When I have time, it's 45 minutes or an hour. When I don't have time, it's 15 minutes. What benefits do you get from that? Like, I, sorry for cutting across you after mm. asking, but I struggle to meditate for some reason. Mm. You know, I, I find it hard to sit down and kind of push something, like, I'd put it on on YouTube or something mm. like that, you know what I mean? A meditation video for 15 minutes and six minutes in, I find myself, I'm just kind of struggling to take it in and I'm just like, do you know what, I'm done with it. Yeah. I just can't do it. But I, don't, I also don't know the benefits of it. And I know that mm. gradually over time, you don't just meditate the first time or the second time and now like you're getting the benefits yeah, of it. Yeah. I think you have to yeah. gradually walk. You have to, it's like everything else. Like you said about running the marathon, when I started meditating first, like I couldn't even hold my mind steady. So what I did was I got a tennis ball and I used to just bounce the tennis ball. And I used to just try focusing on the tennis ball for two or three minutes and bring my attention from out there on a million things mm. to the tennis ball. And then I used to put a red dot on the tennis ball. And as I bounced the tennis ball, I was trying to make my focus even more narrow. So now I was trying to just focus on the red. And every time I saw the red dot, I would count one, two, three, four. And then I realized I was getting to 10 seconds and my mind wasn't drifting. 15 seconds, my mind wasn't drifting. And after a little while, I could bounce the tennis ball for four or five minutes. And all I was seen about was the red dot. When I, I knew I was getting there was when I started doing without the tennis ball. I just started counting. One, two. And then I used to count my breath. And then I used to do it, and I used, like I'm doing now, when nobody can see it. I just make the actions as if I was bouncing the tennis ball. And I wouldn't even count. And I'd just sit there. And then I could sit there for 
10 minutes. I'm like, wow, I was tricking my mind into just being. So you can start, that's a simple way of meditation. It doesn't have to be. Then from that, I used to listen to people. So I couldn't listen in silence. So I used to listen to someone kind of telling guide. It's called guiding meditation where somebody would say, you know, breathe, release your shoulders, clench your fist, take a deep breath in and relax. So I was following him. And then from that, I progressed into where I could just do a music meditation where there was no one talking to me. I could just listen to the music and I would use my breath. And then now I meditate with nothing. So I could sit in a room, just do nothing and be there for an hour and time just disappears. But that has taken me 20 years to get there, starting with the tennis ball and just trying to bounce the tennis ball, focus on the tennis ball for 10 seconds. And over the years, I've got to a point where now I can sit down, get on my mat, meditate for an hour without anything. And in that hour, I don't know if I've been there for a week, an hour. And the science is your brain, as we know, works on, on different brain waves and we can measure it, we can see it. When we're in stress, we're in beta brain wave. And beta brain wave is very fast and it's very stressful. It's sending a message to the nervous system to be in your sympathetic, to be in your stress mode. What meditation does, and we can see this, so sometimes when I have people meditating, I get them to wear little technology and we can see their brain waves. You start to get out of brainwave and you move across data, right to call, called theta brainwave. The moment you enter into theta brainwave, your brain goes into a state of coherence, which is a connection. And all the parts of the brain start to work together. That sends this message to the nervous system that there is no threat in the world. I am safe. I am calm. Your sympathetic nervous system switches off. Your parasympathetic nervous switches on. And when your parasympathetic nervous switches on, your immune system starts to rebuild itself. Your cells start to rebuild. Your organs start to detoxify. So meditation, as well as being a calming effect, actually switches on your immune system, which is incredible. That's You're right. actually rebuilding your body through meditation. So a lot of the high-performance athletes I work with who train very hard would meditate very regularly in order to repair the body physically. And the quicker they're recovering is the harder they can train. A lot of athletes train very hard, but they don't get the recovery right. Mm. That's where the body breaks down. I think when, when you think of meditation, it has that like spiritual tagline on it. And you're like, oh, I find that very hard. Whereas yeah. meditating, just switch off. Yeah. Like, let's just concentrate on one thing. You don't need to worry about what's mm. going on, just one thing. Yeah. So maybe you don't need to sit there and put like this thing on. Something simple as the tennis ball thing. That's yeah, beaten. Yeah. That's so simple and so it. easy to do. I only Love try, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do that all day. But I only try meditation when I'm stressed out. I'm like, fuck, I'm going to put on the telly now and I'm going to fucking, I'm going to de-stress. <laughs> and then five minutes and I'm like, fuck, my problem's still there. You know what I mean? And yeah. I, it's just, it's, it's madness or this. Yeah. But like I have a, we have a friend, Will Awi, who was a previous guest on this couple of times actually. Yeah. And uh, he's a good close friend of ours now, but he tells me all the time, he tries to drill her into me. You need to meditate, meditate. Every day, every morning when he wakes up, the first thing he does is meditate for 20 yeah. minutes, every single day. And I was like, I'd love to get to that stage because yeah. obviously now there's the benefits of meditating, yeah. like you had the saying there. And I think the gift of meditation, and what I want to say is this is what we say in our business all the time. When you meditate, when you practice what we're practicing, when you build your immune system, when you build your mindset, it does not make your life get easier, as in the challenges don't disappear. So you still have to run the bloody business. You yeah. still have to mind the kids. You still have to, you know, deal with all the challenges of life. But they don't go away. But what it does is it makes you stronger. Yeah. And now instead of coming at those challenges from a place of stress and fear and anxiety, you're coming into them calm and focused. So meditation doesn't take the challenges out of your life, but it awakens something in you 
And now instead of coming into those things, anxious and stressed, you're coming in from a place of ease. And what I always say is when you bring ease into your challenges, the challenges become a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. So like I work with people who have all types of challenges going on in life, even people who've been told you have six or eight months to live. Like that's the reality. And sometimes that can't be changed. So the only thing you can change is if you have eight months left to live, do you want to spend them angry and bitter and anxious? Or do you want to go out and live for eight months? And whether you have eight months left or 18 months, doesn't really matter. What really matters is not what happens to us in life, because we can't always control that, but how we choose to respond. And I want people, I'm not saying, oh, meditate and suddenly all oh, your challenges go away. Your challenges will be there. But you begin to look at them different. You begin to think about them different. You begin to approach them different. It's like a box going in a ring. You can't make him softer. You can't say, well, I wish he wasn't as strong. I wish he didn't hit as hard. I wish he wasn't as quick. Because you're on a hide into nothing there. You say, right, he is who he is. He's as strong as he is. He's as good as he is. But I'm going to show who I am. And he got to beat me. And that's the way I approach life. There's a lot of challenges in my life. My life isn't simple. I don't go around in this easy world. But every single morning I wake up my own power. I say, right, if I can't change what's happening to me in life, if I can't change my outside world, I'm going to wake up my inner world. I'm going to approach this as my best version of me. And if I win and succeed, fantastic. And if I don't, I don't. But there'll be no regrets. And I won't be looking back saying, oh, well, I could have, I might have, I should have. Because I really believe the tragedy of life is not death. We all die. The tragedy of life is getting to the end and realizing you never lived. You never actually backed yourself. You never took the shot. You never really went for it. You had this story in your head that I wasn't good enough or I have anxiety, can't be changed. It's like Jerry Hussey talking nonsense. That wouldn't work. That's not for me. He's a clown. And you let that story dictate all your life. And you never actually backed yourself. So every single morning I wake up and I, I tell myself, today is a new day. It's a day I've never lived before. It's a day I'll never get again. I get one shot at so whatever power you have, and some days I have incredible power and some days I have only small power, but I'm going to bring that to the day. And like I said, this comes from a guy who at times woke up in the morning and wanted nothing other than to end my own life. And I had to find something, to find something to fight for, find something to stand on, find something to grasp. And every time you do, every time you begin to awaken, you begin to realize, well, if it didn't beat me yesterday, it probably won't beat me today. And I still get anxious at times. But now when I'm anxious or when I'm angry, when I'm sad, I'm like, this is just an emotion. It's just temporary. It doesn't last and I know I'll beat it. So bring on your worst. Do what you do. I'll just sit here. I'll breathe. And when you pass, I'll get out and live my life. Thanks very much. Unbelievable. It's a bad day, not a bad life, isn't it, Jerry? That's, that's what they say. Yeah. Jerry, you mentioned that you walked by high-performance athletes. How did that come about and how did you get into it? Uh, as you know, I was a very bad boxer. Um, <laughs> and I was always physically fit. I mean, we go to saviors and, you know, Johnny McCormick and these guys had us in flying form and we'd be doing the double skips. Did you ever do the double skips? Could never do it. <laughs> <laughs> and we were doing it for a minute and three minutes and then someone else would say, let's do it for six minutes. And we were physically and then you'd be in sparring and like I was blessed at the time those lads there like you know Sean O'Grady and Darren Sutherland and a great guy called Abdul you remember Abdul and we used to go in spar and we would go hammer and tongs at it all night and we'd be laughing and hammer and tongs and I was fearless and then I'd get to an All-Ireland final a semi-final and I'd just flop I just stopped so I kind of realised that the body can only get you so far 
So I was fit enough to win Irish titles. I was strong enough. And in a gym where there was no stress, I could spare anybody. But then I go to the So I suddenly realised that in sport, for a long time, we looked at the body too much. Mm. We thought it was all down to faster, fitter, stronger. And when I looked at what the Irish Olympic boxing team was doing, particularly after I'd studied psychology and I was just finishing my master's, I kind of realised they're still not really working on the mind. And when I look at the talent we had up to 2008, amazing talent, but they weren't really winning anything. So I came up with this very simple idea in, uh, of how to really build the brain using scientific facts, how we can build a stronger, faster brain to make better decisions. How do we become fearless? And how do we just give ourselves the best shot? I documented it and I sent it to Gary Keegan and Billy Walsh that had just started the high performance program. I did the program with Gary and they introduced me to the boxers. And sure, the boxers were laughing around the place. Because like, sure, we know this fella. He's useless. <laughs> We've seen him in the stadium. He's worse than useless. And you're bringing him in here to teach us. And it was like the first presentation I did. I remember going into the stadium and, you know, the little gym beside the stadium. It was roasting hot day. And I, I was so kind of nervous. I wore a suit and tie and <laughs> I was just wrong. Mm. And I was trying to do the science. And then Billy just put his hand up and said, Jerry, I'm going to stop you there. Like, this is making no sense to fucking this. We're winners. We want to win. We're interested in boxing. I don't care about the science. So can you tell us, like, can you make us fearless? Can you make us punch faster? Can you make us hit harder? Can you make us more resilient? And in the 60 seconds between rounds, can you make us reset faster than anybody else in the world? If you think you can, tell us now. And if you can't, that'll be the end of your interview. Bye-bye. And then I just said, fuck it. Right, I'm going to go for it. And then I just shared simple science and I think then they saw the passion in me. And I talked about my own failings and my own mental weakness. And, and I just said, lads, I want nothing more than at the end of your career that you've absolutely no regrets. And there's no other psychologist here. Nobody else is going to try. So try it. If it's a crock of shit, we'll all walk away. And in fairness to the likes of Darren Sutherland and, and Kenny Egan, and John Joe Nevin, John Joe Joyce, they all just said, right, we're going after this. And we, they, we, at the end of every training session, we used to be meditating. We used to be practicing visualization all the time, setting goals, setting targets, bringing fun and laughter into the gym, changing the complete culture. And then 2008, we won the medals. And then I started working with Monster Rugby and David Gillick. And from there, it was like, you know, I've been lucky enough to work with so many successful teams, but it's, it's training the brain because people think I'm not naturally confident. I'm not naturally good under pressure, but we can train our brains called neuroplasticity. You can literally train your brain the same as your body. And I became obsessive with that and just allowing people to bring freedom and passion and joy. And, you know, you're about one time ago, we'd go away boxers and, you know, the Irish boxers saying, oh, geez, please don't get me drawn against Russian. I hope I don't get the Russian. And if you drew a Russian in the draw, you were like disappointed. And suddenly after a while, they were going, I hope I get that Russian. Because you know what? He's a double world champion. And I want to take him out first. I want to take him out first and I know I'm going to win. And then I can relax. And they'd be sitting at home hoping that Billy would come home and say, you're drawing the Russian or the Cuban. Because they're like, right, I know I can take this guy out because we've gone through the process. I absolutely believe it. I am fearless. And even if he beats me, actually, I don't worry. I have no fear about the outcome. But we're going to break that context down minute by minute, round by round, second by second, punch by punch. And unless he's done the work mentally that we've done, we're not going to be beaten. And it just became, we talked about process all the time, moment by moment, punch by punch, living every day as if it was the most important day in your life, but bringing, living from a place of fun and joy and not being worried about what happens if I lose, what happens if you win? So it was a complete transformation that started with boxing and I've been in 
multiple different sports from sailing to rowing, athletics, racing, everything. And uh, it's just been a joy. It's a joy to work in sport. How and why did you get into boxing yourself? My dad, my dad moved home from London a long time ago and we moved back to Glenamady, a very rural place. And all that was there was GA and alcohol. And a lot of the lads that played GA were drinking a lot. And my dad kind of said, you know, this town needs something else. But there was nothing else. And my dad had boxed in London and loved it and realised that boxing is great for discipline. Anyone, you know, sometimes when people hear me talk about meditation and spirituality and gentleness, and they're surprised that I love boxing. Mm. But everybody knows that if you go to a good club with a good culture, it teaches discipline and self-respect. It teaches you how to deal with your anger, how to channel it. And boxing is not about anger and aggressive. Anyone that has been good at boxing knows that you need to be calm and relaxed, even in a pressure environment. So my dad knew that this would be a good thing for the community. It would just take the kids literally off the street, out of the pubs. He opened a boxing club. But I was, uh, I was terrified at that stage. And... I had my anxiety, so he never thought I'd be a boxer. But one night, my mother was out and there was no one to babysit me. So my dad brought me to the, his club and like he didn't want to bring me. And then I kept saying, can I spar? Can I spar? Can I spar? Can I spar? Mm. And then he's like, oh, geez, here goes. So I was only about eight or nine. So he said, yeah, put the gloves on there. And I went in and I just got the head lumped off me. <laughs> but I loved it. Mm. And for that moment I was in the ring, I wasn't anxious. Because when you're boxing, you can't be distracted because you have someone right in front of you. I was in the moment. It was the first time I actually experienced meditation more and just, I was in that moment. And I didn't care about the physical pain because while I was boxing, the mental pain had gone and I just loved it. And I walked back and my, my nose was all bloody and my dad was kind of hoping I'd say, oh, I'm never doing that again. I just said to my dad, when are we training again? He said, we're training Friday. Right, I'll be down. And I just loved it. And I was never a good boxer and I lost way more than ever won. But it allowed me to experience meditation in movement. When you're in a ring, your mind is nowhere else. It taught me how to manage my emotions, to deal with my anger. And that's, I just think it's an amazing sport. I think if my own kid, you know, if, if I can influence him, I just think it's an amazing sport. And I know boxing often gets a bad rep and mm. people think of boxers are rough. And I, I've been around boxing clubs since I was eight years old. I've traveled the world with boxers. 99% of them are just amazing human beings. And the discipline it requires, not just the discipline around training and, and diet and lifestyle, but the emotional discipline to be in a ring and to manage that fear. When no one can help you, you're absolutely on your own. You have to stand on your own two feet. And when everything's happening really fast, you have to be able to slow it down in your mind. You get hit, you have to just move forward and you have to dismiss it. And you're getting angry, but you have to channel that. So... I just think it helped me with everything. And it is, I still box. I still take fights. Why call it? Like, why am I doing that? Because I think it's an analogy for life. You have to stand on your own two feet. You have to step into the ring of life. You have to be willing to back yourself. You have to be calm under pressure. You have to deal with your emotions. You're going to get hit. You're going to get hurt. And at times you'll get knocked down, but you can stand up. Stand up, take a deep breath and say, let's go. And that's what I love about it. Mm. I heard a... Roma. I don't want to say fact because I might butcher it, but was the Ireland team ranked 50 somethings in the world before you come in and then you got them top five? Boxing. Like yeah, boxing. Yeah, Irish boxing. Before Billy Walsh and Gary Keegan took it over, yeah, they were definitely in probably the 50s in the world. And to the point where, like, 
an Irish boxing team would go and you'd take 10 or 12 guys to a competition, the European Championship, they'd all be beaten on the first, so a three-week competition or a two-week competition, they'd all be beaten on the first fight. So within the first two days, all the Irish boxers were out and they'd sit around. So every country in the world wanted to come up against an Irish boxer because nobody took us serious. And we had serious talent. And we got to number two in the world and we won gold medals at every weight division, at every group. And we did it by changing culture. Now, Zora Antia brought incredible new training techniques mm. in. And he has a technical understanding of boxing that I think he's the best in the world. No one matches Zorantia. And what Billy Walsh had was an amazing ability to build a team, to care for people. He deeply cared about people. And when you put Zor and Billy together, you had a package that was just world class. I've never seen two coaches work like that. One working on the technical side, one working on the human side. And then you had Gary Keegan leading this incredible program of... like. You spend five minutes with Gary and you think, of course we want to win the Olympic medals. He was just unrelenting about this vision. That I, and we would all say that Irish athletes would consecutively stand on world European and Olympic podiums. And people used to laugh at us. Even the Irish Sports Council at, at the beginning wouldn't fund us. They thought we were mad. But Gary had this unrelenting vision and every day he turned up as if we were the greatest boxing team in the world. And he built us all. So... It was surround yourself with the right people, create the right stories, create the right vision, and every single day turn up and walk towards that. And it just was this magnetic energy. It was just forced. We just loved being there. We loved being together. We deeply cared about each other. I think that's what everybody knew that they were deeply cared about. And whether you won the medal or not, that wasn't what matters. Everybody was deeply cared, and that's what I've, I try to bring to every team that I work with, this idea of love. Can we love each other? Can we love what we do? Can we love the jersey we play in? Can we take away fear? Because love and fear can't coexist. The brain can't function. It can't have fear and love at the same time. So can we take away fear? Can we take love? Can we deeply care about each other as human beings? And can we give this a shot with freedom and clarity and focus? And that's how we did it. It was just year after year, week after week, month after month, day after day, constantly stepping into that space, doing what we need we needed to do, Forget about the critics, forget about the cynics, forget about all the obstacles and just find a way of doing it. Find a way of becoming better, find a way of improving, find a way of supporting each other. And uh, it was an amazing journey and I was lucky enough to go to three Olympic Games with them and, and you see the new crop that came through like Michael Conlon and you see Katie Taylor coming through and, and even now you're looking at the crop of talent there, it's mm -hmm. still unreal. So you mentioned there about loving each other and stuff. Yesterday you told a story, I, don't, I can't fully remember whether it was a hurler or a footballer or something, but a half-time in the dressing room when his father hmm. was dying. Yeah, we were in a, a dressing room and a very good team, but at that point we were probably tired. We'd won a lot over the years and this really game wasn't that important, we thought. It wasn't really important to our legacy or it wasn't really important or so we thought. But we were about to discover that it was really important to one of the players. And at half time, when we were kind of making excuses and not really there, and I was the psychologist, I didn't really know what to say. There was a guy standing in the shower and he was kicking the wall. Now, you see a lot of crazy stuff in dressing rooms, but this mm. was unusual. One of our main players, so I walked down and asked him what was wrong. He started shouting at me, this can't happen, Jerry, this can't happen. And then it was the first time in my life I saw a person with actually froth in his mouth, with anger and tears. And even though he was a monster of a guy, he looked like a little child. And I said, fuck, what's going on here? I said, are you okay? And he just burst out in motion. He said, this can't fucking happen, Jerry. Not now, not today. It can't happen. And he starts roaring at me. So now the whole dressing room hears. And he knows they're all listening to him. The dressing room goes deadly silent. So he walks up 
and he takes them all on because up to that he was trying to hide his tears and hide how much it was hurting him. And then the captain said, like, what's wrong with you? And he just said, this can't fucking happen, lads. This can't happen, not today. And they were like, why are you getting so worried about it? It's not that important of a game. And then the captain said, like, what's the big deal? He said, most of you know my dad is, is ill. What you don't know is he's in a hospice. He's dying right now. And this is the last game he'd probably ever see us play. And last night I left him and I promised him that I would bring this cup into him. I promised him that we would beat these bastards. And you let me down. And I never forgive you for it because you're making excuses. You're not doing what you're meant to be doing because you think it's not important, but it's important to me. And I never forget the silence. Suddenly it was important. Suddenly there was an energy in the dressing room. Now it was about love. What would you be willing to do for people you love? And we'd spoke about love all year, and now this was the test. Do you fucking love this guy or not? Do you really love him? Because you'll never get this moment again. You'll never get this chance to give him what he needs. And I'll never forget the captain stood up, and he walked across the dressing room, and he grabbed him, and he kissed him. He said, I promise you, we'll have the cup. He turned around to the dressing room and he said, we win this game, or you do not come back to this dressing room. There is no other way in town now. We're winning this game. And they went out and absolutely annihilated the opposition. And I, I talk about the what, how and why. Often in life we know what to do. We know how to do it, but we need a why. Why are you doing it? And when love becomes your why, I love it. Like people say, we're tired after delivering the day yesterday. I was energised because I love doing that. Mm. And I think whether it's life or sport, when you connect people with love, why are you doing it? Too many people say, I want to win medals. Why do you want to win a medal? I want to build a business. Why? I want to make a million dollars. Why? Why? And then somebody says, I don't fucking know. I don't really know. And a lot of people are like, why are you in the job you're in? Why are you in the relationship? Why are you doing what you're doing? In this one short, tiny life you have, when every day is precious, why are you giving that your time? I never even think about it. And that was the greatest moment, one of the greatest moments in my sporting history, where I saw the power of love. I saw a guy crying in front of his teammates said, I need you to fucking do better. I need you to show up. We've 40 minutes left. I'll never get this chance again. Can you just stop waffling and lying and cheating and making excuses and pretending you're injured and for the next 40 minutes, can you fight for me? And I just saw people change in the dressing room. Physically, they look bigger, stronger. Lads that come in saying they were tired, they were injured. We're fucking bouncing out the door. So nothing's going to stop us. What would you be willing to do for the people you love? And every team I work with, I start from that place. Can we love each other deeply? Can we love what we do and can we love this jersey? And if that brings the best out in us and it's still not good enough, then we can live with that. But there will be no excuses, there will be no regrets, and everybody's going to see the best version of us. And that's the promise I make to myself in life. I'm criticised all the time. I have people who say I'm, I'm a daft, I'm a lunatic. I don't care. This is my truth. I know why I do it. I get one shot at this life. And my biggest mission in life is I'm going to have no regrets at the end of it. I will win, I will lose, I will get things wrong, I will make mistakes. And everybody who engages with me or brings me on into their team, that's what I want. Just fucking give this a go. Just put your heart and your soul into this. Get rid of fear. Activate love. Turn up for each other. And let's see what we can do. And the more you... The more you stop worrying about losing, is the more you win. 
Nee, ich gehe aus Das war ich gesehen yesterday, it's all about intent and like conviction and wanting it and I don't want to believe and keep saying, oh, tell that thing what you said yesterday, you know, that type of way. But before I even say that, yeah, you said to me before this now today that you went in there yesterday with no script. And I remember sitting in the chair because it's fucking five hours or something. <laughs> and you were up there five hours and I kept saying to myself, how the fuck is he remembering what to say, where to say and when to say? Imagine like a live show, five hours of talking. Imagine that. <laughs> when we do a live show, Jerry, yeah, we go out and for the first 20 minutes, half an hour, me and Calvin will have a buzz with the crowd yeah, and yeah. we'll know, like, anytime we're at a live show, we only tell real stories anyways. We're not going out, like, making up a fake story. So, so you're just recounting just, something that's happened already, yeah, so it's yeah, easy. Yeah. yeah, so we'll you say... You don't have to yeah. write it down, like. Yeah, so we'll just say, like, when we go out, we'll always say, like, just go out and improvise and have a buzz with the crowd and then... I'll tell that fucking story about what happened to me then and then you tell that story about what happened to you and it's just that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's for about 20 minutes, half an hour and nearly every live show we forget where I'm going and what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and you were there for five hours. Why do you do with no script? Oh, well, it'd be hard to script for five hours anyways, yeah. but I mean, hell. I do it because same as if I'm working with someone one-to-one, you have to work with the person in front of you because let's say both of you have depression, but you work with different individuals. So you might experience depression differently what caused your depression could be different. So if I say, oh, well, here, you know, Terence and Calvin have depression, and I both give you the same solution. So if I just start kind of rhyming off events, then I'm kind of neglecting the people in the room. I've never had the same group of people in the room together. So you have to work with the energy. And what I'm doing is a bit like, I only talk about things that I've done in my life, things that I understand. So well, if we talk about cold water immersion, if we talk about the science of the good brain axis, it is because I've lived it, I studied it, I understand it, I know it works. So it's like, I'm recounting my own story. I'm telling you my story. I'm telling you the science behind my story. I'm telling you how I did it. So whether you want to talk about being suicidal, I've been there. If you want to talk about waking up in the morning and feeling absolutely useless, I've been there. If you want to talk about being the athlete that loses everything because he's mentally weak, I've been there. If you want to talk about setting up your own business and terrified and having no money and barely able to pay your mortgage, well, I've been there too. And I think the diversity of my life and often the pain in my life is my own greatest gift. I don't talk about things that I've no experience in. I don't talk about things I don't understand. But I've been doing this since I was 11. And I've immersed my entire life. So if you ask me to change a light bulb, I barely had to do it. If you ask me, I'm no good at anything else. Yeah. This is the one thing I've dedicated my life to. And I've done it since I was 14 years old. I know it inside out. I know these topics inside out. So there's a great expression that says, I can go in unplanned, but I'm never unprepared. My life has prepared me for this. My life and all these challenges and all the time it kicked the shit out of me and all the time I thought about giving up and all the time I tried to set my own business up and all, that's the preparation. So now I'm going to tell you about it, but I've also studied the science behind it. But if you ask me a question about anything else, how to start a podcast, I have no idea because I never did it. How do you, how do you wire a house? I can't do it. Yeah. How do you change an alternator in a car? I'm not sure. I, I'll tell you, I don't know. And that's what I'm saying to people is pick one thing, become the best in the world at that. Mm. Immerse yourself in it. There's too many people trying to be good at something, but they're caught up in a bit of this, bit of that, bit of everything. Because this has changed my life and because it continues to give me the gift of freedom and happiness, it is singly the most important thing in my life. I'm all in on this. So like I've, I've walked away from a safe job, I've walked away from pension. My wife is the same, she's in this business. Every aspect of our life is in this. 
this is who we are. People in the show yesterday they saw me, they saw my wife, they saw my dad, they saw my mum. There's no part of us that's fake. There's no part of us that's an act. This is us and our life and our heart and our soul and is who we are. And when you bring that energy of freedom to work with the people in the room, now you have freedom to create, to manifest. Like all the energy that we created yesterday, that wasn't me creating the energy. That was the people in the room. I was like, Jerry was only there, but he was only part of the show. And everybody walked away as to having a different experience. But I was confused as well, because I want to go back to earlier on, I was talking about meditation and how I can't really connect with meditation. But yesterday, like, and I have connected with meditation mm. in the past. Like, I've done meditation before where someone is not just on my own, where I'm in a group and, and I felt a certain way or like I was calmer in that moment. But yesterday, I didn't know whether it was just me. When you were doing that meditation, I literally felt hypnotised. Mm. Like, I felt, I can't explain it, mm. but I thought it was just me because I was saying, I have a bit going on in my head the last couple of days or mm. weeks, yeah? So I was saying, to myself, maybe I just needed that and that was just mm. the perfect moment. But then I was asking the people I was with and they said the same thing and mm. they're not just going to say that to say it. They yeah. all said, like, I felt hypnotised. They're like, what the fuck is going on? Like, yeah. And it's like, how do you get a whole crowd, because I can imagine everybody in the, in the room felt the same yeah, way yeah. over that meditation process that you did. It's, it's coherence and resonance. So what's that? Your brain is an incredible thing. People have to understand it's also limited. It is an incredible system. It's run by chemicals, electricity and matter. But your brain has one big job to do in life and keep you alive. And the best way it keeps you alive is to constantly identify the threat that could happen, that might happen, has happened. And it's constantly telling you. So if you're playing golf, it's telling you, don't hit the bunker, don't hit the bunker, don't hit the bunker, don't hit the bunker. If you're about to do a podcast, don't fuck it up, don't fuck it up, don't fuck it up. So your brain is constantly addicted to threat. You know, a hundred people love the show and one person says it was shite and your brain says, oh, fuck, why do they think it was shite? Why do they think it was shite? Your brain is always, so you have to move beyond the brain. You have to move into a place of heart, love. The frequency that's generated by the heart is far more powerful than the brain. So we can literally allow the brain to tick over, but you get out of the brain. A lot of people think mindfulness is about getting into the brain. Get out of the brain because the brain is not the mind. The brain is the body, like the lung or the kidney. The mind, the soul, the spirit is not in the brain. So now you move out of the brain and you start to open the heart. So the first 45 minutes I was doing was opening the heart. How do you do that? Because you speak from the heart. And when I speak from the heart, there's a different energy off me. There's a different frequency. A lot of people, when I speak, start getting very emotional. I say, fuck, I'm here standing there. What's going on here? Because I don't speak from my head. And that's why I don't use slides. I speak from my heart. And when you speak from the heart, you start to communicate to the hearts of somebody else. And now I've just fast-checked you from getting out of your head into your heart. And you're like, well, I can stay with this. Because there's a rhythm. Or we call it a vibe or an energy or a frequency or a spark or a connection. Now you're connecting people. Bum, 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 bum. You're opening their heart to love, to kindness. And now you're creating a frequency. So you have everybody in the room now operating or oscillating at the same frequency. And you feel connected to this powerful fucking thing. And you're thinking, I'm not going to meditate. But if I can meditate because there's something in the room that's making me meditate. Yeah. When you see the music and the dance... It's all set to create a frequency because music is frequency. So we're sending vibrational frequency into the room that bypasses your brain, opens your heart, connects you to the person beside you. Their power becomes your power. Then you're looking at them saying, Fuck, I'm only dancing because they're dancing. They're looking at you saying, no, I'm only dancing because you're dancing. Nobody knows who's dancing, but we're all caught up in this wave of energy. And what happens then is when your frequency changes, your cells' biology begin to change. So if you were to look at people's chemistry and biology, it's changing. 
genes and cells change depending on the frequency. So people say, I thought I was on drugs. So now you're releasing your brain when you start to feel that elevated sense of activation or movement. Your brain releases endocannabinoids. Now listen to the word, endocannabinoids, cannabinoids, cannabis, cannabis, and endorphins. Endorphin is endogenous morphine. So every single human being has the ability to produce these incredible drugs that make us feel calm, connected. Your pineal gland begins to release this super hormone and you just feel like, I can do anything. I'm free. In order to change everything, you've got to change your frequency. Mm. You've got to get out of the brain. The brain is an incredible thing. I'm fascinated by it. We need it. I love it. But it's a threat detection system. It is addicted to challenge, addicted to threat, addicted to fear. The heart only knows love. And when you change the frequency, you're now changing your biology and your chemistry and your body's releasing new chemicals. So you come in stress, you are full of cortisol and adrenaline. By changing the frequency, your brain switches that off and it switches on oxytocin, which is a snuggle hormone. You feel loved, you feel safe, you feel connected. And then you start to release endocannabinoids and you start to release endorphins. So your frequency and your chemistry are now connected to this sense of freedom and power and fun. And every single one of us can tap into that every single day. It was just mad because I, I couldn't explain to Calvin, couldn't I? No. Like I was trying to, I was trying to say it to him like that it wasn't just like, like we can meditate and meditate and it's good, yeah. And I've meditated before and, and I felt calmer and like kind of in the moment for, for a little while. But that yesterday was kind of like, whoa, weird, like... <laughs> Like, it really did feel like, like a you trip. were kind of hypnotised. Like yeah, yeah. Or tripping or something, yeah. Mm. There was something really powerful. That's you tripping. They call it getting high in your own supply. Yeah. You are now producing your own chemical. And when you start to release the pineal gland, for years we never, or pineal gland does nothing. Nothing in the brain does nothing. Nothing mm. in the body does nothing. The pineal gland secretes this incredible, and we can access that through kundalini breath, through meditation. When you activate the substance of the pineal gland, it creates this whole brain, what we call hemisync, this whole state of coherence. And you're like, gee, I can see things I've never thought I could see. I could. Yeah. It's so simple. It's so easy. And all it is is using the natural chemical systems of the body to bring yourself into a state of coherence. And it's, it's powerful. It's calm. It's loving. And it's not about chemicals. It's not about drugs. I've never smoked. I've never drank. I've never done drugs. I have no intention of doing those things. But if I can experience what I experience... And not only when I experience that, but now that I'm experiencing that, I know my immune system has been supercharged. I'm getting healthier and stronger. Well, who wouldn't want that? Mm. Yeah. Yesterday, as well, you mentioned that you were brought into work with the Horland team in Tipperary. Can you yeah. tell us yeah. about that? Yeah, two things. I worked with Tipperary Horlers in 2016 and thankfully won all Ireland. But the one I shared yesterday was from a club team, Bally Gunner. So their Watford Hurling club team that won all Ireland two years ago. Mm. And... They did it in the most amazing style. So they were playing Ballyhale. And if anyone knows Ballyhale, they're amazing teams and the aristocrats of hurling. And Bally Gunner had never been in the All-Ireland Final and no Watford club had ever won the All-Ireland Final. So we're in unknown territory. And with the three minutes of injury time almost up, the ball fell to a guy called Harry Ruddle. Now, Harry won't like me saying this because <laughs> he's the most humble guy. But hey, if you're born with the name Harry Ruddle, you're going to be special. It's a great name. <laughs> But the ball fell to Harry Ruddle, and Harry Ruddle is not the superstar. He doesn't go around saying that. And at the time, he was probably struggling to get his place on the team. He came on as a sub. So you probably would have thought at that moment, I'd prefer the ball to go to someone else, but the ball came to Harry. And what people didn't realise was the work that Harry was doing for months, meditation, visualisation, 
constantly telling myself that I would have a massive impact on the season. I would have a massive impact on this season. And a couple of times it looked like he wasn't going to get his place in the team. He, people said, like, why is he working so hard? Like, why is he driving himself? And he just never let up. He never allowed himself not to believe anything other than he was going to have this incredible impact on his season. And he was coming to myself and a guy called Tony O'Regan that worked with him as a psychologist, looking for more, physically more, technically more, but coming from a place of love. And when it looked like the chance of winning all Ireland was kind of slim. But even slimmer was the chance of Harry Ruddle even making the team. Harry used to say, we're going to win all Ireland and I'm going to have a massive impact on this season. So with two minutes and 45 seconds of the three minutes of injury time, 15 seconds left to go, the ball falls to Harry Ruddle, who's just after coming on as a sub. And most people would say, geez, Harry, quick pass it, pass it. But because of the work Harry was doing, because of his mindset, Harry realised this is my moment and I never get this moment again. He looked up the pitch passed the ball to his left and then realised the whole lot's opened up in front of me. Just took off, received the ball back, went up a blistering space to score one of the greatest goals ever scored in Crow Park. One dollar and went from two points down to a point up, last puck of the game. And people say, oh, wasn't he lucky? Of course he was lucky. He could have missed. Keeper could have saved it. But the harder he worked, the luckier he get. People will never understand the work that Harry did to get himself into that position. So as it was unfolding, instead of saying, oh shit, I haven't been here, I've never been here before, what if I make a mistake? Harry convinced himself, this is happening, it's actually on. I know now what's going to happen. Sure, I've told myself a thousand times. There was no fear. And afterwards, we were kind of slagging him about, well, you know, what about the lads that were rushing out, the defenders? Like, I never saw them. How about the time? I didn't know about the time. I just saw everything open up and all I saw was space. And I just knew I was going to score the goal. And that's the level of focus we can get in time. But if you're waking up now and say, oh, I don't like Mondays, I don't like good, that warm workout, then that's what's going to happen. But you can create that level of space. You can create that level of belief. You can create that level. It doesn't mean that everything's always going to work out. But now, if the opportunity arises in that split second, there's no doubt, there's no fear, there's no hesitation, there's excellent execution. And when somebody executes excellently, without fear, without hesitation, they're probably going to win. You have the best chance of doing it. Yeah, yeah, in Greece. Hello. When Terence saw me this earlier, the example I that like shot into my head was: Did you watch the Last Dance documentary about Michael Jordan? I did, yeah. And the like, obviously, when Michael Jordan played, he was the best ever. Anyway, so opposition teams used to set up to defend him and crowd him yeah. out. And they're sitting on the bench. They call a timeout. And they're sitting on the bench. And Steve Kerr turns to Michael Jordan and says, "When you go to make that shot, give it to me. I'll be ready, and I'm gonna make that shot." And he's the only person on the bench talking. No one's even looking at him. And he's, he's shouting to Michael Jordan. And Jordan has his head down. The manager has his head down. Everyone else has their head down. No one even believes him. Hmm. And then it cuts to the play. Jordan makes a run for the basket. Three defenders come out to him. He passed the ball to Steve Kerr. And he's shooting scores and they win the championship. Yeah. And it's like, that's, that's the belief, you know. And that's obviously if he didn't believe himself, his chances of success obviously yeah. do drop. Yeah. So as you do say, yeah, you're not 100% guaranteed no. to hit the shot. Yeah. But if you don't believe in yourself... There's a great writer that says, whether you believe you can or whether you believe you can't, you're going to be right. Mm. So if you start off saying, I don't believe this is going to go in, I don't believe I'm going to get the chance, it's not really working, and then you're, you're, it's actually not going to work. The other way, you're giving yourself a great chance. But the moment you begin thinking it's not going to happen, it's over. It's over. Mm. So you have to write to the end. And it's always about the question. Instead of saying, will this work? Ask Chef, if I absolutely had to make this work, how could I make it work? And now you're challenging your brain to think of something else. Don't look at the obstacles. Don't look at the difficulty. Don't look at, find a way of doing this. If I absolutely had to make this work, what would that look like? And most people, if you ask yourself the right question, you'll find the way. But most people are asking the wrong question. Why, what happens if I fail? You know, 
What if it doesn't work out? And the problem is that's what your brain is listening to. And as you said about the reticular activating system, the more you think about it, the more you think this probably wouldn't work out. Jeez, what if I make a mistake? What if I don't catch the ball? What if I hit it wide? The more you think about that, is that's exactly what's going to happen. Do you do uh, one-to-ones as well, Jerry, outside of sport? Do I do, do yeah. Coaching? Yeah, I will bring you after this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, I coach individuals and I think for me it's important. Like the more we do big events now and we're beginning to take our events to, you know, UK and probably Australia and, and America, in one-to-one is, is really hard because it takes up a lot of time and it's not a commercial thing because the reward isn't there. It's easier to put the same time into a big event with 5,000 people in it. But I coach and I deliberately coach a really diverse group, male, female, different backgrounds, different ages, different, because I have to test myself. Does this work? It's almost like, imagine if you were a brain surgeon and you're doing brain surgery every day, but you've studied brain surgery in college, but you've never performed a brain surgery. You've never done one brain surgery. And the two of you are giving a talk. And I really want to know about which one am I going to go? I'm going to go to the guy that does it every day. If I'm talking about how to build a high-performance team and I'm not working with a high-performance team, if I'm quoting the All Blacks and I've worked with them, if I'm talking about dealing with anxiety, but I'm not actively coaching someone through anxiety, if I'm talking about overcoming suicidal tendencies, but I'm not actively helping someone get out of that, then how, what am I talking about? I'm talking about something I read in the book. Mm. So I will only quote people I've worked with. So for me, that one-to-one real-life immersion, every single day I sit in front of people and sometimes they terrify me. And I say, fuck, can I deal with this? Can I really help this person? And they're right, dig deep here, Jerry. Find out something, read more. You have to bring your best self to this person. So for me, I think it keeps me sharp. And all the stuff that I do, the events that I do, the books that I write, that's just telling you the stuff. So I have to really work with sports teams. I have to work with people. It has to be working with people with anxiety, depression, and then people who uh, have nothing wrong with them, but they need to maintain a real high level of awareness, focus, confidence, because they're running some of the biggest companies in the world. So if you want to be master at what you do, you got to do it. You got to do it. And that's why I think coaching every single day for me is so important mm. yeah when's our next seminars what ones have you got coming up we have uh, one in Cork so um, Cork have been looking for me to go so we're going to go on the 10th of September tickets are on sale we have a massive event in the concert hall in November the oh. 12th of November is the national concert hall yeah my birthday is the 13th so there, there go. you go I know it's the day after my book hits the store so I have a new book coming out it's, it's available to pre-order now it's called The Freedom Within and we have a retreat in Portugal where we take people away and, and for five days we immerse them in this work, real deep immersion that happens in October. So as well as that, then it's, you know, we've lots of other stuff going on. And mm. Have you I got a website, Charlie? We have, it's soulspace.ie. Um, so everything we do and we give away a lot of free content. We have an incredible community of people who sign up and every day we give them access to yoga, meditation, incredible talks around good health, around brain chemistry, everything we spoke about today. So that's, Soul Space community, soulspace.ie, or if you go on my own Instagram page on my, if you click the link in the bio, it, it'll show you who, who we are, what we do. My wife is a pharmacist and she's she realizes and appreciates the gift of pharmacy and the gift of medicine and we absolutely need at times. And she also realizes the shortcoming of it, that sometimes medicine helps and sometimes it doesn't help. Sometimes you've got to go deeper and bigger. So the business is between myself and Miriam. We create the content. We come up with the, the science and Natasha, who you see there, does everything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just for everyone listening as well, like I know obviously people that are going to listen to this are going to be inspired and motivated because it's very powerful stuff what you're talking about. But if you think this is good, 
you need to get to one of them events. Really though. And uh, and I'm not just saying this like to promote Jerry because he's on the podcast and whatever. Fucking hell, this is what I don't know how long we're into this podcast, but the events are fucking five hours of it. And it's non-stop inspirational, motivational stuff, and, and, and you really need to get them. So that's mm. my take on the whole thing. Yeah, now Jerry, you are recommended to us by Derek O'Hearn, so give it give a shout to Derek. It's been a long time, many weeks now we're trying to get you on. You're a busy man. <laughs> so uh, you're always jet-setting as well, and you're busy. I suppose it's a good sign if someone in your line of work is constantly busy because yeah, like, yeah. Uh, it shows that you must be good at it. <laughs> well, thanks for coming in. We really do appreciate it. You ready to wrap this one up? Yep. Yeah. All right, take us out there. Chris, boom. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. What you waiting for? Put your back in it. Just a little more. Try your waiting it now. Fill your body up in. Walk it high and low. When you finish that. The Hypnocker. Go down. Go down. Go down. Go down.